0: This is NBR's People in Business, a compilation of this week's top stories about leading New Zealand entrepreneurs and business people over on nbr.co.nz. Visit our website and sign up for full access to this and other great video content featuring the best in business.
1: The National Party has recently released a policy that outlines how it would roll back an effective ban on genetic modification and gene editing in New Zealand. The party's research, science, tech and AI spokesperson Judith Collins is with me now. And Judith, that's a very long title. Um, can you explain to me how the party came to producing this document? Right, well it's a
0: great question, thank you, Dieter. Um So I have had the science, research, innovation portfolios now for a little while, probably about 18 months, and before that I had the tech one for about three years. So. I have spent the last 18 months going around talking to scientists and trying to upskill myself on what it is we're doing here and understanding really the depth and the breadth of what we have and I was asking them things like how can we use science to help us on climate change issues because we've got to deal with this stuff Mm. and they would come up with this is what you need to do you need to have um, really good use of gene editing in particular, as well as genetic modification. But gene editing is new technology as in developed in 2012, I and mean, it's not that new, 10 years old. Mm-hmm. But um, the laws that we have at the moment were uh, put in place well before, well before the, the new technologies. And, and I also asked them about things like animal health and, you know, human health and things, and it all came back to this, that to make the most, a single biggest difference we could in terms of um, our greenhouse gas emissions, but also in terms of human health, we need to remember we have a massive—it's um, a, a massive community of scientists who are there to help us, and they want to. Mm. So we came about that, and I also I've been to uh, recently to Adelaide in in uh, South Australia and seen what they've done around biotech. In fact apart from take some of our scientists, um, and they've opened up very much along the lines of what what we're saying we will do. And they did that a couple of years ago. So they are now trialling, say, outside of the lab, plants that can be very useful, drought-resistant, all those sorts of things, with a little bit of gene editing, which is just taking a gene and then tweaking that individual gene that's not actually adding anything else to it. That's
1: the CRISPR?
0: That's the CRISPR, yes, yeah. CRISPR technology, yeah. and um, which won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2020. So you're talking about totally different technology than 30 years ago.
1: So what is your understanding of why <coughs> New Zealand hasn't moved? We we are outliers in the sense, like well, the EU is, but hardly anyone else is. Yes, and the EU is
0: moving towards Mm. uh, where we're going and in fact some parts of the EU are very very fast moving like Spain and Portugal and places like that. I think what's happened uh, Dita, and I was around at the time when the whole Corngate thing happened I was coming into politics in that 2002 election uh, which was traumatic in many ways (laughs) ways. Um, but I remember that it was all about fear Mm -hmm. and um, and I think fear is a very powerful thing. Um, I've certainly seen it in politics. And it's significantly more powerful than hope or facts. And what we've seen is that the country became so immersed in itself and so and no political party wanted to go out there and say this is what you need to do. Mm. And I just think that the scientists got ignored. And, and scientists have said to me, look, you could do this sort of thing, but maybe after the election you could tell people you're doing it. We can't do that. Mm. You know, we can't do that. We've got to go. Because they're so frightened themselves right. that, they, um, that their work will be misunderstood. And um, what they're doing, I mean, it's extraordinary work um, around cancers, around all sorts of things, but particularly around the economic powerhouse that this could be because we have to be... Re- relatively unusual when we have in a country with 5 million people we have 8 universities we have 7 crown research institutes we have 18 different industry research institutes one I was at yesterday in, in Blenheim um, on wine and um, and then we have you know these these enormous numbers of people who are top of the range and their work is going overseas mm-hmm. so we're missing out
1: yeah um, within this harnessing biotech, which is your policy, you you make the scientific argument, and I think it's undeniable. I mean, the technology has moved on, as you say. In two thousand and three they were inserting genes into other things, so there was a fear of that kind of unknown. Now, as you say, it is more contained. But i I am curious to know if you spoke to business about this because part of New Zealand's marketing plank overseas
0: is GE free produce. It's a really good question, Dieter. So yes, of course, I've spoken to business about it, but I'm also very aware that business, and particularly the marketing arms of business, um, they want to believe that this is the big thing that we pay get paid a pro, um, premium for. Well, I've talked to people who really are there, and they've said, no, maybe once, not so much now, because if you look at our markets, you look at you know our main market in terms of our primary products, to be frank, is China. So China, mm-hmm. about two, two, three years ago, 2019, actually four years ago now, started to move towards the GE um, or gene editing, being able to use NGM. So so you're, you're talking about uh, markets that have moved on too because, look, if we could have products that we can say we have less pesticides or no pesticides or we we don't have to use as much water or we can do these things, those are really great marketing tools too. Mm-hmm. So... I think we've possibly just become a little tunnel-visioned on it and saying, well, this is what the world cares about. We go to the States, we eat GM food, we we bring in, you know, soy milk, um, and I use milk, obviously, in quote marks, um, and and we, we think, oh, you know, we're all GE free. Well, if it's coming out of the States, it's most likely, almost certainly, GE'd. And you're talking about technology that has moved on so significantly that I think our marketing needs to get up to date with it, which is there are so many more possibilities. And if we look at the way the EU is moving, Mm -hmm. and certainly the UK has certainly gone right into um, much more into the gene uh, editing and and technology, we're just going to be left behind um, talking about how good our product is when actually we're missing out. I'm just going to give you an example. Um, say with, you know, apples. Mm-hmm. So we have great apple crops in Hawke's Bay until, obviously, the cyclone. So your normal apple tree, people who are in the industry tell me, takes about seven years, five to seven years, to be able to, to put in the ground and to be producing enough fruit to make it worthwhile. There's work going on to mean that that can be done within a year like less than a year. Mm. What a recovery story that is. If you think about that, the opportunities economically are huge, but also to actually keep that market going, because the moment our product overseas is not on the supermarket shelves, someone else is going to put their product in there. And if you look at our main competitors, you know, Canada, the US, um, Argentina, Australia, Australia, Um, Brazil, they're right in there using gene editing and genetic modification to help them to compete against us. We need to be really smart and the other thing is it's not compulsory, nobody needs to use it if they don't want to.
1: We have got also though a flourishing organics um, sector, they are worried
0: about this kind of Look I understand that and that's why it's not compulsory and so the same people in the organics area need to also think well. In California, they've got a flourishing organics um, thing, and they've got they've basically got almost no regulation on biotechnology. We're talking about a very sensitive, sensible, dedicated biotechnology regulator. Mm. Um, they don't have that. They have three different agents that it's basically free. And they've got a major organics industry. It doesn't have to be the same. It's just like for organics people. So if you've got an organic orchard, you might think, well, what about me? What's this going to do for me? Well, nothing, many more than what being next door to another orchard that's not organics does for you. Um, it's like it's not compulsory. And in fact, mm-hmm. I would have thought it gives the organics people a premium again that they want to have.
1: I guess um, the issue is bringing, bringing the public along, in a sense, because as you say, there is a lot of lingering fear from those many years ago. The One of the big sort of pushes for this technology, I think, is the environmental argument. Can National make that argument, given that they s- sort of have a tr- mixed track record in accepting climate change mitigation and that kind of thing?
0: Well, we're not going to accept, um, data, you know, mitigation meaning you kill all the cows, which then you then kill all your, pro- your products you <laughs> sell. Um, we're not going to do that. But I think we are the only party that's had a commitment to not just rushing off and saying we're going to end an industry or anything like that so I think so and and what I've found interesting is the Act Party came out straight away when we announced this and said yes they agreed um, the Green Party said words to the effect that they want to have a conversation about it they are interested in it Um, they're actually keen to look at it well that's great um, and the Labour Party has eventually, after several days of, of um, I just presume, fighting between themselves, particularly between David Parker and El Shaviril, who I'm sure does support this, um, <laughs> have said, yes, well, well they're doing something, they'll, they'll look at doing something. Their own scientists, their own Prime Minister's Chief Science Advisor, Dr Gerard, has been very clear, you've got to do this. Right, yeah. But that's their problem, is all the... Experts have actually told them this is the only way forward because we have very old, out-of-date legislation. And one of the examples that Dr Gerard, the Prime Minister's own Chief Science Advisor, gave, and I'm going to have to paraphrase her because I haven't got it in writing in front of me, was that it's a bit like um, banning electric vehicles because they can't meet the same standards and requirements of the um, combustion engine from 30 years ago or 20 years ago. And she's right yeah um it's understanding the CRISPR program completely changed everything
1: Judith Collins thank you very much
0: thank you
2: Kiwi company Hydroxis is a clean tech company that could help clean up New Zealand's waterways with its novel technology and joining me now is chief executive Chris Macbeth welcome Chris
3: good morning pleased to be here
2: So Hydroxys has a vision for a world of clean water. What problem are you solving and how are you solving it?
3: Well, I think um, to answer that, I'd like to ask you a question. And and the question I've got for you, um, Fiona, is uh, have you used water today? Yes. You have. And did you think about where that water came from? No. No. And that's part of the problem we're actually trying to solve here. Um, You know, when we've looked at at, uh, the Hydroxys technology and, and seeing where where we can uh, point that technology to have the greatest impact, we've realised that um, we're in a situation globally where our access to fresh water, is, quite frankly, is running out. Uh, and the UN reported earlier this year, by 2035, 40% of the water that we need won't be available to us, of fresh water. We'll be 40% in deficit in terms of fresh water. And that's that's a major concern. You know, population growth continues alongside that. You've got increased urbanisation. We've got uh, geographical um, movement of, of populations to, to areas where there is access to more water. But in general, we're running out of the one thing that we all need to stay alive, and that's water. So for us it became quite obvious that our technology offered a solution to being able to secure the future of water. And the way we've done that is by by using the technology that we've developed uh, around membrane filtration to be able to deal with the extreme conditions that you would see in industrial wastewaters. And the reason, one of the reasons why we've done that is because uh, at a global scale, and, and to a lesser degree even here in New Zealand, 80% of industrial wastewater enters the environment without any form of treatment whatsoever. It's quite shocking. And and these are not numbers we would expect people to be aware of because...
2: I'm not sure I wanted to know that. No,
3: but but particularly here in New Zealand, we have an abundance of water. And, and that's, I think, being part of the problem because our attitude towards resources... Like water uh, has been, if I can say, casual. But then, if you look at the, uh, the, the, the state of the rivers and the waterways in New Zealand, the recent reports that have come out, we're not doing so well. 50% of our waterways are deemed unswimmable. And we're a good country. So, you know, when we've looked at this problem, and looked at how we can contribute to helping solve that, it became very obvious to us that, that the hydroxyl solution, which which is an ultrafiltration membrane, um, offers a new approach, a, a novel approach to thinking about how we manage wastewater and how we extract resources out of that waste. And in particular, the way our membrane uh, has been designed is quite disruptive because traditional membranes simply cannot withstand or tolerate the the variability and the conditions that are experienced in a wastewater system. And, and we're talking about highly acidic waste, uh, caustics, uh, so the pH all scale, the all the nasty stuff. Mm. Chlorine that's used to sanitise plants. It may be full of fat. It may be full of proteins. It may, be, may have blood albumin. It could have fish waste. It could, you know, be bacterial waste from bioreactors in, in wineries, um, all of which don't satisfy the problem of being able to enable the, the reuse of, of water as a key resource. Whereas our membrane is different, and it, it's designed in a way that it allows it to operate across those, that spectrum of conditions. Uh, it is highly pH tolerant. Uh, you can expose it to chlorine. You can expose it to the conditions that traditional membranes simply throw their hands in the air and give up and die because they're not designed to, for that purpose.
2: Okay, who came up with the idea in the first place? Where did, where did the you know membrane technology come from?
3: We, we had a small group of founders who back in 2012, 2013 sat down and, and realised that we needed to think differently about uh, membrane technology. That there were opportunities that existed out there to to create something different. And um, you know, a small group of, of founders sat down and and looked at a, at a different uh, industries entirely to find the solution for uh, ultimately what became the Hydroxys product. Um, and we we took our core uh, or base membrane out of the lithium-ion batteries industry. So we started with something that was um, readily available in terms of of, of the the physical membrane, but that had also proven itself across uh, a long period of time and across a long um, uh, range of of conditions to be able to withstand the extremities that uh, might exist in in wastewater. So we started by having a, a product that we were then able to have confidence would be able to stand up under those conditions, and then we uh, we brought in the the scientists, um, the you know the 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 intellectual side of the business to figure out how we took this membrane, which is polyethylene. It's a it's a poly. Um, a polyethylene product or or we can use uh, polypropylene as well but it's very thin film so it it allows us to do things with it that are are, are special and uh, we had to figure out how to take that membrane which was highly hydrophobic so it would repel water and convert it into something that would allow water to pass through it very efficiently and that took a long time and a lot of failures but also a lot of resilience and a lot of determination. And ultimately, uh, a, a bit of a eureka moment, where we were able to determine how we could could convert that hydrophobic film into something that was very, very hydrophilic. And we've done that using a combination of um, what we call green chemistry, uh, advanced polymers that are non-harmful to the environment themselves, but that, when combined with our membrane, and um, you know, with a little bit of magic that we apply in the in the application process, uh, allows that polyethylene to become very very hydrophilic. So hydrophilic in fact that it will actually uh, what we call wet out. Uh, water will actually pass through the membrane at atmospheric pressure. And, are, and there,
2: are there particular industries you're targeting then?
3: Yes, absolutely. So um, you can imagine the scale of of global. Wastewater, industrial wastewater is massive, right? It's, it's a half a trillion dollar market. Um, for us to be able to stay focused on what we're doing we've looked at the New Zealand market and said where are the the biggest opportunities for us to create impact and we've identified food and beverage manufacturing uh, as a key uh, component in the New so Zealand market. So rather sense.
2: than the dairy industry or well, is that part, is part of it. that. Well dairy is part, yeah, dairy of, is
3: part of that, so, so food and beverage itself is, is quite broad, you've got a number of different types of industries in there and, and we've, we're looking across that but in particular we are looking at dairy and we are looking at wineries and we have some activity in, in the fisheries industries as well and we've done uh, several uh, north of 30 different types of field trials across a range of industries and i'm, I'm talking about stock effluent uh, fish waste dairy uh, we've even done tanneries and in all but one situation and I'll come back to the one. All but one we've shown the ability of our membrane to deliver um, exceptional results. Uh, in one case, uh, I can't mention names obviously for commercial reasons, but in one case the the, the client was non-compliant uh, regularly with their consent, and by putting our plant into their process and running the trials, the results brought them immediately to within consent, and not just in consent, they were yeah, miles below where they needed to be. So it was a fantastic outcome, and and we're working with with that client to now deliver that system into their operations, which is fantastic.
2: So where are you at with the commercialisation?
3: We are a late stage startup and we are in early phase commercialisation. So we have a commercial unit operating uh, here in South Auckland. Again, um, for commercial reasons, uh, uh, can't discuss too much about the client. But um, we are working across, as I said, we've done 30 plus trials. We've got... um, six or seven different uh, clients that we are working with in various stages to uh, deploy the system into their operations, and that, that includes dairy, wine, um, some transport hubs. Uh, I mentioned stock effluent.
2: So you're just starting to make revenue?
3: We're, we're just starting to make revenue. <laughs> we're, we're expecting this year will be our first um, uh, significant year in terms of revenue growth, but uh, we're also looking out into the future and looking at where the opportunities are, whether they be here in New Zealand, uh, in Australia or, or wider. Because um, this
2: obviously has export potential, doesn't it?
3: It has global application. Mm. And, and while we are deliberately staying very focused around uh, a narrow set of verticals, because you know, we have to be conscious around our scale and our scalability, um, the, the opportunity to extend and expand that is uh, exceptional. And uh, to give you an example of that, we just recently partnered with New Zealand Product Accelerator and University of Auckland uh, on specific projects around technology extension. One of the projects that we're working with there, and we have have uh, reasonably high confidence in. It's early, right? Just a lot of work to be done, but it's um, it, it's around actually focusing on nitrogen removal for dairy farms. Uh, using our membrane, which we've shown in our lab to be able to reduce nitrogen in wastewater by uh, north of, sort of 85%, we want to get that to a higher uh, performance standard and then be able to look at dairy farming uh, and, and removing and controlling nitrogen as a resource on the farm rather than letting it be uh, just sort of put out through the irrigation system and and, and it leaching into waterways and causing downstream impacts. So that's an example of how we're looking at the future of the technology as well as what we're doing today around commercialising.
2: So all of this takes money, of course, to get to this point. How how much have you raised today? Now are are you seeking more funds? Uh, We
3: we've been uh, so we've been in operation since 2013 and had a number of of investment rounds through that that period. Um, Very grateful for a a number of loyal investors. Um, I think our our most recent uh, investor count is is uh, 48 on our cap table. So we've got a a broad spectrum of investors and and. um, we're really happy with the support we've been given we've just recently closed our biggest round ever uh, so at the end of March we we went uh, we closed a, a convertible notes offer which raised uh, just over three point two million dollars and that gives us the ability to really push forward now and start accelerating the commercialization space um, in anticipation of um, you know looking looking into, next year, next calendar year, potentially looking at the market for a Series A raise or, uh, or a further funding opportunity at that point.
2: And so the Series A would give you um, expansion capital to go
3: offshore? Absolutely. Yeah, the Series A would be pointed at internationalisation. We need to make sure we're getting robust use case here in New Zealand and potentially in Australia first. Uh, that gives us the credibility and the relevancy around uh, the technology to be able to take it off- offshore into the bigger markets such as uh, the US um, Europe, uh, Asia.
2: So, just finally, Chris, what's been um, the biggest hurdle for commercialising this technology?
3: To be, um, to be perfectly frank, we are disruptive, and there's a lot of um, hesitancy. Uh, people, in industry in New Zealand have a certain way of thinking about technology, in particular ultrafiltration, which has been around for a long time. You know, ultrafilters have been used industrially for over forty years. And and they have certain limitations, as we've we've uh, we've talked about. And it's hard for people to accept that what we're saying is now different to what they've learnt. So we have to go through a process of of providing confidence and assurance, and managing a perceived risk uh, for our clients that um, you know is real in their eyes. You know the, the, that cynicism of it sounds too good to be true. If I had a dollar for every time. It's, heard that, I'd probably be, uh, we'd probably be having this interview over on Waiheke on the beach. But um, the, the reality is we have to take the customers on that journey with us. And, and that's why we've taken the approach of being able to go out there in the field and demonstrate in their environment, uh, in their systems, what we can do. And then we sit down with those customers because they're all different. It doesn't matter if you're a dairy factory next to another dairy factory chances are your problem's different. So we have to step back and look at that and say what is the underlying problem this client has versus the one next door and make sure we're delivering a solution that meets those requirements. So we take a, a, a lot of time um, to understand that problem, work with the client, find the right solution, make sure it's going to work and then we make sure economically it works for them as well. So whether it be a capital project, might be a, you know, a couple of million dollars investment, so it's not insignificant. But um, if, if there's a, a sense of risk around that, then we look at alternatives to capital where perhaps it's a, a lease option or a subscription model or some other way of financing the asset to give the client time to build confidence. And then perhaps after a period of time, they have the option or opportunity to, to purchase it outright.
2: All right. Well, thanks for your time, Chris McBeth.
3: No problem. Thank you.
1: this morning's Toil and Trouble Employment Law slot, I'm talking to Simpson Grierson's Christchurch-based senior associate, Ashley Inder, about the latest on fair pay agreements. And Ashley, kind of pertinent to note, I guess, that the Minister really pushing these FPAs was yesterday forced to resign.
4: Mm, mm, Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean look it's it, i think everyone is very familiar with the concept of fair pay agreements now um i mean they've been around now since you know 2017 um when you know they were first announced as part of labor's election campaign and then of course you know last year whether we liked it or not um the legislation obviously came into force at the end of um the year i mean there has been commentary aplenty plenty in this space um but, you know, it's a really it's an interesting concept, um, you know, they're, they're obviously designed to um, set, you know, national minimum pay and conditions um, for employers and employees. And, you know, in, in some respects, it's it's hard to argue with that concept from the employee perspective. But equally, you can't ignore, you know, the huge amounts of work time resource um, that's going to be coming up for for a lot of different industries. So
1: yeah, that's right. Mm.
4: As recently as yesterday, I was listening to a
1: select committee in which Michael Wood was speaking, and and mm. he said in that select committee that um, the continued rollout of fair pay agreements was was still a big focus for the year. And I think he mm-hmm. said nine mm-hmm. had been sort of approved for uh, negotiation. So where are we mm. at? Do you think do you think it will survive h- him going? <laughs>
4: Yeah, I mean, I I think it is going to be, um, you know, business as usual over the course of the next few months. Obviously, election um, not included and, you know, I suspect we'll talk a bit more about that here. But, uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's been a really, really busy couple of months. So, so far, we've already seen um, applications to initiate bargaining being approved in a number of different industries. Um, You know, back in March, we had the bus transport industry. Um, You know, May, we had security officers. We had the hospitality industry. And then just this week, actually, which um, obviously very timely, uh, given our talk today, um, we also saw commercial cleaners um, and early childhood teachers is also being uh given the green light to initiate bargaining. So um look, uh, you know, that's already happened. Um I think that the the minister's resignation um you know, it's it's you know, it's it's interesting, but I don't think it's going to or we're not expecting it to change anything um you know, over the course of the next few months I don't think as far as Um, bargaining goes for those industries who have already been given approval and there's still applications being considered by MB. Um, You might have seen as well, you know, we're still waiting to see the outcome for uh, supermarket and grocery workers and um, also waterside workers. So there's still heaps going on in this space. Absolutely. Now as you've alluded to already, the
1: election may change things because Christopher Luxon has said he's going to ditch fair pay agreements. How
4: Mm. easy would that be to do? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean it's it's interesting. Um, I mean it's you know it's no secret um, that the National Party strongly opposes fair pay agreements, and um, you know they've they've come out swinging and they've said that you know if they are elected, um, then they are going to repeal that legislation. But you know, it's really difficult to say how, um, you know, it's it's one thing repealing legislation, but the other thing to think about is obviously, you know, what happens to these fair pay agreements um, that are already in progress? And, you know, if, um, you know, for, you know, the bus drivers, security, hospitality that I've just touched on, you know, what happens if they're all sitting around the bargaining table and then this legislation is repealed, um, you know, or even if a fair pay agreement in one of those industries has been enacted? Um, what happens and we, you know, we just don't know at the moment and it is very much watch this space. Um, I think as well, you know, something that, um, you know, we and I suspect other employment lawyers in this space possibly might be asked over the coming months is also, you know, um, uh, is there a way uh if you are an employer who perhaps isn't fully on board with the fair pay agreement concept you know is there a way that we can avoid engaging um you know in that process you know in the hope um that there might be some kind of post-election a uh, post-election repeal um and you know that that brings up all sorts of problematic things in, in the good faith bargaining space and um yeah, so it is, watch this space at the moment. Um, yeah, we're not sure what's going to happen.
1: Just in terms of your knowledge of the employment courts so mm. far, I mean, it looks as though, for example, the bus drivers may just squeak in before the election in terms of mm. finalising, because there's a lot of will in that sector to get to, a, to an agreement. Mm. Um, mm. If one was in place, wouldn't that be mm. a difficult legal
4: um, process to unwind that if it was already enacted? Yes, um, I think it it definitely would be a difficult um, process to unwind. Um, And, you know, uh, in addition to it obviously being a difficult legal process to unwind as well, um, by that point as well, you know, there's huge amounts of resource and money that will have been spent as well. And, you know, I guess, um, you know, there would be frustration on on the part of um, employees and bargaining parties and everyone. So there's there's lots to think about there. There's the kind of legal practicalities of it, but there's also, you know, the time and the money and everything else that will have been spent on it getting it to that point as well.
1: Yeah. Just Mm. before we go, I did want to ask you about this morning's news from ACT. Uh, Mm. They are proposing to take on the perennial issue of contractors versus Mm. employees. (laughs) Now, they seem to be taking the employer's side, as you would expect, of ACT. What do you make Mm. of what
4: they're saying? Mm. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. And, um, you know, it's it's quite clear, obviously, that... um, What they're talking about is being pushed from the employer perspective. And, um, you know, I suppose they're saying, you know, if if you are a contractor and you genuinely want to be working in that arrangement and, you know, you don't want to be um, an employee, you don't want to be tied down and being a contractor works for you, then I suppose they're saying as an employer, you know, if everyone goes into that arrangement with open eyes, why should you be penalised for that? Um, you know, and and I, I can see that perspective. Um, I suppose there's the other perspective Um as well, which is, you know, if you are an individual who perhaps doesn't fully understand what you are signing up for and perhaps doesn't have access to um, you know, legal advice and, you know, isn't fully going in with open eyes to the arrangement, um, then I suppose that's the group that might be penalised. Um, but it's a, it's a really, really interesting proposition, I suppose, especially um, given Uber and, you know, everything else that's um, been happening in, in that space in the last few years. So again, um, I think it's an interesting one to watch. And, you know, I think the fact that they've come out with some suggestions, some practical suggestions around what could be included in the contract as well, it's um, that's, that's really interesting. Yeah.
1: And just finally, I mean if national and, national end act were to come in in October and act was speedy in getting this a bill up to snuff and and passed mm. how mm. soon could it unwind the direction
4: of the courts in terms of these disputes do you yeah. think Yeah. I mean, I think it would take, um, I think I think it could, that could definitely take some time. Um, again, I think, you know, people would be having to go and get advice. You know, lawyers again would probably be figuring out things a little on the fly and quickly having to read into new legislation and, you know, working it out. But, you know, there's also still delays um, that are happening in, in the employment courts as well. So, I mean, it's hard to put a, a time limit on it, but I would... I would certainly expect um, the phone to be running hot for employment lawyers, you know, immediately. Um, And then I guess it's a question of, you know, how quickly some of those cases could be heard um, in the courts and, uh, you know, how quickly as well individuals want to act on it. So I don't think it would happen overnight, um, but certainly the phones would be ringing hot pretty quickly, I would imagine.
1: (laughs) That's great, Ashley. Thank you very much for talking to NBR. Thanks for having me. Thank you.
5: Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member
0: subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. Anna
1: Kidd is the founder of The Tea Curator a five-year-old business selling specialty teas online. Kid lost her husband in 2021 and, after battling through, took the unusual step of closing her online shop for two months at the beginning of this year to get on top of fatigue and burnout. She's recently opened her online shop again, and she joins me now. Anna, thank you very much for coming in. You had a horrific experience of seeing your husband through um, terminal cancer and you're raising two children and many, many other things, no doubt. Um, and I think I've just answered my own question, but what made you take the sabbatical?
6: I, From when Andy was diagnosed, I realised how important it was for me to really look after my own health and well-being. And I had developed a number of practices throughout the years of his illness to really make me feel very mentally fit and strong. And at the end of 2022, I could just start to feel I was becoming really exhausted and overwhelmed. And so I knew it was a bit of a sign that actually I needed to take some time out. And with a bit of advice from a business coach who encouraged me because I was the business owner um, to really prioritize my health and well-being I did make that quite difficult decision to shut my business down for two months. I mean most founders would be aghast no doubt
1: yeah. at the idea of that not knowing your background uh, coming into that but what were you what did you believe about the fate of your business at the time that you made that
6: decision? Yeah, I think. I think the world is a really challenging place right now and I think it's incumbent upon us to actually think really differently about how we run businesses uh, and how we think about ourselves as involved in those businesses and through my business I do talk a lot about health and well-being, and, and a lot of that is because of my experience with, with Andy and so in a way I was living my brand values by making this really bold move that's not to say it wasn't really scary because it was but the response I had from my customers was so overwhelming and I think they could really genuinely see here is somebody that is not just talking about something but is willing to make what could be quite a big sacrifice for herself um, and sort of for her energy levels and for her family as well as her business as well. So what was behind your sort of personal yes. communiques? Yes, so when I, when I started to think about sharing my story with my audience, It was really nerve-wracking because I'm an introvert by nature. My background in corporate communications had always seen me behind the scenes, not in front. So it was a really big moment for me to share my full story with my customers. But the honest truth is that the response I got from my customers was so overwhelming and really heartening that they were telling me here was somebody that was being very genuine in their business um, and you know not only talking about putting their health and well-being first, but actually doing something that demonstrated that. And I realized in that moment, and it's something I knew intellectually, that people connect with a person, they don't connect with a faceless brand. And when I returned from my sabbatical, I wanted to to, sh- to be honest with people and share what I got up to on my sabbatical so I was quite truthful about um, about what happened in my in my two months off and again I had lovely feedback from my customers about that because they were starting to to learn about who I was as a person and probably trust me as well as a business owner I yeah. think.
1: So no one said too much information? No, no not at that. all. No. Amazing
6: no yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> so it was a it was a gamble but it paid it off. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
6: Now what's happened with the business since you've come back? It's been really heartening actually so I certainly knew going into it and during my sabbatical that this could be the death knell of my business taking two months out. I was very aware of that but when I sat back at my desk on day one when I was opening up my business again I felt such a sense of what I would say is euphoria. I was so excited to be back and I think the distance from my business gave me a different insight into how lucky I was to have created a business that um, not only supports my own health and well-being but that encouragingly gently encourages others to do the same and my sales have been strong so so similar and a bit above May and June's tracking the same so I feel like it's only been good for my business and so finally what are your aspirations for the business yeah there's so much potential for, for tea in the New Zealand market. So we tea is a very ancient beverage, but we only really get access to a tiny proportion of the tea that's produced across the world. Tea is very similar to wine, that it's a natural product. The flavour comes from the natural tea leaf. And we, uh, we get access to probably what sits at the lower end of the spectrum, but there's a higher end of the spectrum. And that's where I source from is high grade, uh, loose leaf tea. With the movement that people are drinking a little bit less, a little bit more mindful about the health of their minds and their bodies and taking time out. I feel like there's huge potential in tea because once you get into a habit of drinking good tea every day, it's embedded in your daily rituals. Um, and so the, the, the market in terms of direct-to-consumer, I think, is really large. Then you look at you know, corporates and hospitality and corporate gifting. So I feel like there's enormous potential. That's great, Anna. Thank you very much. Thank you.
5: It's time for this week's Economy Matters, this time with MBR columnist Hilmari Schultz. Hilmari, today you're looking at our exports. Why do we have such a focus on land-based exports?
7: Hi, John. Nice to see you. Um, Yes, I think our focus in New Zealand has always been on land exports, which is great. Um, but it's also, as you know, and especially with climate change, that we have to look at diversifying our exports as well as our exports markets um, to make sure that we provide enough opportunities for our businesses um, to participate in international trade.
5: What sort of diversification are you talking about here? I know previously we've spoken about technology.
7: Um, I think it's a diversification in terms of providing new opportunities for a lot of our um, tech industries. Um, also diversification in terms of still land-based, but looking at um, technology research and science uh, from our land-based products. I think we have such a great comparative advantage in growing grass. Um, that we should be able to export some of these technologies to the rest of the world.
5: What are some of the barriers to getting those other areas in the spotlight?
7: I think some of the barriers is we are a small trading nation. Uh, the majority of our companies are SMEs. So when we go into a free trade agreement you know, with a country like China, um, just the sheer volume of what they want, uh, we cannot supply... Um, So we will have to focus on creating um, specific niche markets um, for our exporters.
5: The government has been successful in getting a number of trade deals over the line, but you've also talked about India.
7: Yes. Um, India in April has become um, the biggest population country in the world, surpassing China, and um, We as a nation has also shifted to becoming an Asia-Pacific trader away from being a Commonwealth trader. And the glaring gap in our trade agreements is India. Um, India is a huge market for us. Um, I know that the barriers currently is around agriculture because um, India thinks they have a comparative advantage. We think we have a comparative advantage. But I do think A free trade agreement with India is surmountable, as long as there's a political will to look at, you know, what are the common grounds and what are the advantages for both nations.
5: Closer to home, you've also talked about Australia.
7: Yes, um, a friend across the ditch where we love and hate. Um, Looking at our free trade agreement, we've had a free trade agreement with Australia since 1983. But if you look at um, the advantage of the trade agreement, just in the last 10 years, eight out, of, eight out of the last 10 years, we have imported a lot more than what we exported to Australia. And on top of that, one of our biggest exports currently Australia is actually people. Um, so we're seeing a significant migration of Kiwis um, across the ditch.
5: What common ground do we have with Australia at the moment?
7: Oh, I think they're ally in terms of other regional agreements and regional trade agreements, So, and they will always be our ally. So I do think it's about diff- um, building on that common ground uh, and making sure that we provide access um, to new products and to new technology for our exporters to the Australian market.
5: With all these free trade agreements, you've pointed to the risk of a so-called spaghetti ball effect. What's that mean?
7: Yes, um, so this has been um, something that's come up in the last twenty years. Where, um, you know, we've signed fourteen free trade agreements, and with each free trade agreement, it has its own specific rules of origin. So, rules of origin is very important to make sure that you protect your market and make sure that we have a fair and competitive market. But then it gets to a stage where um, the exporter has to comply to so many different certificates and rules of origins that it actually hampers exports. So we have to be very conscious that um, our exporters have to, like to Australia, there's five different rules of origin certificates that they have to supply. Now, if you're an SME, that is a significant barrier to trade.
5: In terms of the overall goals of diversification, who needs to get on board and what agreements need to be signed?
7: Um, the government, of course, because they signed the free trade agreements, and I think business. Um, And business has to indicate what are the areas that they would like to explore, what new markets they would like to explore, because ultimately um, a modern government um, has two functions, and that is to create an enabling environment and to address market failure. And I think if that's the focus um, that will help us, especially in entering new markets like India.
5: Is there a push from business to get into India, and fast?
7: Yes. Um, You know, our biggest competitors, Australia and Canada, um, already have access to the Indian market. So we are competing against them on a very unfair platform because they have preferential agreement um, with the Indian market.
5: Is it also a case that they are much bigger than us, a huge market?
7: Yes, yes. Um, but it's also, again, Jono, um, we talk about the Indian market, but we could actually look at a specific province because um, they will be able to sh- um, to sign a t- free trade agreement um, as an independent province. So it's not to say we have to si- sign an agreement with the entire country. We can actually look at specific parts.
5: Well, Mallory Schultz, thanks for your time. Thanks, Jono. Hill venture capital
8: has lured an American down under to help with its mission to identify and grow early stage Kiwi companies. Andrew Leahy has been named as the Auckland based firm's second general partner alongside Hill founder Rob Vickery. And he joins me now. Hi Andrew. Hey. Thanks for joining me. Um, I understand you've just arrived in the country a few days ago. Um, Why have you decided to set up Camp in New Zealand?
9: Yeah. Uh, Well, it's the age old story of met a woman who grew up in another country and uh, she came to America when she was 13 and so grew up in Ann Arbor, which is 20 minutes away from where I grew up, actually. And um, we met uh, a little a little under two years ago and uh, fell in love. And uh, we came to visit the country in February of this year and spent a month here. And I, I fell in love. Uh, it was it was quite easy to fall in love with New Zealand for me. Um, and we decided we wanted to raise our family here. We decided we didn't want to have uh, children in the States and we wanted to um, raise our children here. Excellent. And so that was really the big impetus for uh, for coming to the island so I mean you've mentioned that you want to be
8: you you want to be in listen mode and and do all this learning but what do you feel like you bring like your skill set and your connections I suppose bring to the landscape here
9: absolutely I mean look I've been doing business in the States for 20 years Um, I've got a lot of really great connections at startups and technology companies and and even just regular corporations right I've, I've got a I've got quite the network in the US that I've built and so what's really fun for me is that I understand how Americans do sales and marketing. And I understand what they're looking for. And I understand how to put that in a in a nice little box to make sure that you can be successful, right? And what I'd like to be able to do is work with our CEOs here in our portfolio to show and tell how to how other startups that have been super, super successful in the US, how did they do it? Well, they did it XYZ A B C, right? Mm-hmm. And being able to kind of show that um, what it takes and, and how it works, um, and let's use and borrow and and some some of those tactics in order to be successful outside of just selling in New New Zealand, but throughout the globe. Mm. Uh, so that's kind of number one. Number two is um, I'm a software guy, but I've also invested in in consumer businesses and in with physical products. Um, you know, my custom suit company made suits and uh in china and we shipped them in 10 days to the u.s and then they took them four days and so so i have a lot of different experience with different kinds of companies um and so what i really want to be be able to lean into is is how do you how do you take that and translate that on an even bigger scale Hmm. right and um you know that zero to one problem that a lot of startups are challenged with is very different than your one to two problem mm. very different than your three to four yeah. problem yeah and so I can work really well in that zero to one and I can work really well in that two to three as mm. well
8: mm. in terms of the, the funding environment obviously just even in the past six months to a year being fairly difficult in, in the US and all, that means all around the globe to find investment um, I mean what's your impression of where the market's heading in terms of the in terms of um, the flow of capital
9: sure it's interesting because, you know, there are a lot of funds that have a lot of money that are sitting on the sidelines. Um, and there's this pressure to invest. But at the same time, there's also this hesitancy to make rash decisions in a market where there's a lot of froth. You know, AI companies are having crazy rounds of valuations and, you know, this company just raised $106 million recently, right? It was their first investment. They're buying a bunch of AI hardware, right? Um, so we see a lot of that. And, um, you know, I'm, I've always been an investor that really cares about business models and revenue generation and growth and traction and numbers and, and things that you can go, oh, okay, I see what you're doing here. You're building a business, right? And so I think you have to balance having a really big vision for something that you can't quite achieve yet? And do I have a business today? Am I ever? Am I able to sell something right now? Right. Um, and so I think making that balance is how you make good venture investments in an environment like this. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't have to listen to all the noise. You just go, what are we doing? What are we selling? And what's the really big monster vision for how we do something even more incredible than what we have today, right? Mm -hmm. And if you can put all those pieces together and quiet the noise down, right, and help build businesses, um, really good tech businesses, I think that you have a lot of fundamentals to go off of to not be uh, gun-shy about investing. Mm -hmm. I mean, the New Zealand context has grown a lot in the past
8: year or three since uh, particularly, you know, since the likes of Hill um, started up and elevate financing that's coming through the government, adding some more sort of mezzanine finance. So, but New Zealand's typically been a bit of a backwater and quite, you know, difficult to raise those big pieces of capital. Sure.
9: Um, you know, you mentioned your networks before. Do you, yeah. do you feel like
8: that's going to help sort of attract a
9: bit more? Yeah. I mean, I think that what's really a great, where it's really a great place to go once you have legs for your business is to go get those series A and series B from the from the those investors that are in the US, Um, you know, test something out here, build a credible business, maybe even get over to the US for a contract with Whole Foods or whatever it is, right. But translate those those next levels and get people in the states, you know, that are writing those larger checks for those a little bit later stage not i I shouldn't say later stage not seed rounds right um i think that can be a really powerful way to connect um and add resources to something that's working really well Mm -hmm. here and or or working well abroad as well Mm -hmm. um and so i i think it will be important to to build a great venture backable tech business here and then and then outsource the that next round from from other places Yeah.
8: Um, now, Hill Ferentz has been sort of a, a leading voice on things like collaborative carry. You mentioned the the, oh, yeah. the community sort of vibe before. Is that something that sort of drew you to them or is something you, you agree with?
9: I think it's incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes me want to be a part of this community and, and the success uh, as a collective. Um, you know, I always use the example, like, When Nirvana first came out in the 90s, I know I have to use a music example, right? Um, (laughs) They weren't the only band that sounded like Nirvana in Seattle. There was like a bunch of them, right? They were just the best one. But there was a scene of grunge rock that was around. And communities allow for those rock, the rock stars, the A++, those communities are what function to allow those the the a plus you know the the premium tier to exist and f- and and function right so if you can build that within a practice where you know I'm portfolio company a and while well, i use portfolio company b's hr software for my company like that that's a really great way to have a leg up amongst mm-hmm. other people so i help i think it helps win deals against other term sheets i think it helps with sales for other portfolio companies and and case studies and momentum um, and it, 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 just generally fosters community amongst people to be helpful and value add, mm-hmm. right. Uh, to have support. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's, I think it's really smart and I think it's very generous of Rob as well. Um, to, to create a model like that mm-hmm. where it's not just me, 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 our firm, you know, these are, this is all of our upside. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's really smart.
8: Mm-hmm.
9: Was there anything else you wanted to mention? Look, um. You know, Zero is a really famous company that you know uh, listed on the American Exchange, um, and you know they employ five thousand people nationwide or worldwide. Um, they really put New Zealand on the map in terms of like a venture backable, disruptive platform can exist here, and the world can use it. Um, and I want to back founders that are solving big problems that um, can create um, something that has that much value, mm. right? I want to. I want to ring the bell on the Nasdaq with a CEO from from New Zealand that's exporting New Zealand to the rest of the world. Um, I think it's ambitious, but that's that's what I want to do. That's why that's why we're all here. Um, You know, so for me, um, it's it's really about aligning aligning that passion with with really hard work and and um, and understanding that uh, solving big problems is hard. Um, and that's why VC money exists to figure out how to bridge the gap between a business model and solving big problems. Um, and so, you know, I'm excited, I'm excited to learn. I'm excited to kind of just learn for the next six to eight months, you know, once, once I arrive and get to know, get to know the environment here, um, and, uh, really partner, partner with the CEOs on, on their businesses. And, you know, I think Rob's done such an incredible job of coming to New Zealand, um, really breaking in here and in, in kind of a, in kind of a big way you know he's he's knocked down a lot of doors um, and um, you know us partnering together on our, our portfolio companies is going I'm really looking forward to it he's done a great job and I'm excited to join him
8: Excellent well thanks for joining me and best of luck
9: thanks I appreciate it thanks for having me
0: and that's been this week's people in business thanks for listening if you're hungry for more and want to join the discussion, head over to nbr.co.nz